Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Hello, Fintech Beat listeners. This is Amaya Scarity, partner at QED Investors. And today, we're continuing our look at product. We're going behind the curtain of fintech to better understand that popular buzzword, embedded finance. Over the last couple of years, embedded has been on the lips of every fintech investor, and it's easy to see why. If you're a fintech who can find ways to partner with the biggest startups or the biggest brands, you'll be able to grow when you're sleeping. Today, we're exploring the other side of that coin with Mike Hinckley, who is at the center of Airbnb's efforts to add new fintech products. In particular, he's going to tell us the story of how he helped design, launch, and ultimately decide to stop a lending product for Airbnb hosts. Mike's perspective helps us see the challenges of embedded finance, the limits of information, the reputational risks, and the challenges of being dependent on another partner. He also shares that Airbnb always thought of financial tools as part of their core business. What would make the platform work? not as a profit center or a crutch. From one perspective, Mike's history is exactly what you'd expect. He started his career as an investment banker, then worked at General Atlantic, one of the most storied firms in growth equity. He worked at the Treasury Department, where I met him, has an MBA from Wharton. But he also co-wrote a book on the history of microfinance, was the founder of an umbrella company, built a time tracking app, and my favorite, a browser extension that teaches you stoic philosophy. Mike Hinckley, welcome to the show. Hey, Amias. Thanks for having me. I love it. It sounds like you've you've done your research. I'm impressed. Well, I, I will say that uh, talking to you about Stoic philosophy is something we'll do another day. So let's <laughs> okay. let's start with the core. Um, when you were at Airbnb, how did Airbnb think about fintech? Did they think of themselves as a fintech company, or was it always part of just making the core product the best that it could be? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So, uh when I was there, you know, the the company had gotten to a point where we'd grown quite a bit. It was definitely a category leader already and we'd kind of looked around and realized, "Wait a second. We've built all this really cool infrastructure including payments infrastructure to build this global hospitality platform. Now, what should we layer on top of it?" And so, it was a really exciting period where we ran a bunch of different tests and experiments on you know what the right um the right way into fintech would be but in you know I, I imagine in this conversation we'll talk about some of those but ultimately what it came down to i think for most fintech company or for most embedded finance companies is like you're either doing it to build a profit center Right, you're doing it to to add a new revenue stream, or you're doing it to fuel the core business. And so, in Airbnb's case, uh, we were definitely in the latter. Right, we were we were endeavoring to fuel the core business, and there's a lot of reasons why we took that approach rather than 
trying to build a, a, a new profit center, but that that's kind of the way that we looked at it. And how did you think about the the touch point? I mean, one way that I think about it is that payments is sort of the gateway drug for embedded finance. But <laughs> even by the time you joined Airbnb, you know, payments was pretty well integrated. So can you give us a feel for what that product development roadmap looked like when you joined? How did payments change or how did other things change as Airbnb got deeper and deeper into using fintech to fuel the core business. Yeah, so when I joined Airbnb and we started looking at fintech stuff, um, there had been a couple experiments in and around the payments team, different ways to expand the payments platform. I'd say today the payments platform is a real core asset of Airbnb, right? And that's needed to fuel the core business as it is. Airbnb operates in almost every single country in the world. Um, you know, when I was there, they had, they took pay-ins and payouts in something like 60 different currencies. So the infrastructure was really, really advanced and it needed to be for the core business. And so we were kind of trying to take a step back and say, okay, we have these really cool tools. Now, how can we use these to kind of help fuel the business, the businesses that our hosts run? How can we help them? empower them, help them build better businesses. And then also on the guest side, we, we had a bunch of really interesting pro- projects, some of which were some of the best things that we did where, you know, we looked at things like buy, buy now, pay later. How can we help guests, um, you know, better afford reservations, better pay for them over time, et cetera. Um, so there were some really exciting things that we looked at. Yeah, it is a really interesting um, this point about the businesses that the hosts were running. Because yeah. I think one of the things that those of us who work in fintech all the time sometimes miss is that a lot of what makes embedded finance exciting is the idea that there are platforms like Airbnb that really are sponsoring you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of small business owners And so these embedded finance tools really are tools for those small businesses. Mike, I'm curious, how clear a view did Airbnb have of these small business owners and how deeply entwined was was their business um, with these small business owners? Okay, this this is a great question. And this kind of speaks to, I think this will take us into some of the challenges actually in embedded fintech that I think not a lot of people are are talking about or realizing until they really get into the guts of it. So one of the big things that we realized as we started working with our hosts to deliver fintech products, and let me, maybe it makes sense. I'll take a step back and just describe kind of what some of our core projects were. So the big thing that we built was we wanted to find a way to help our hosts um, finance home improvements for their listing, right? We sort of took a step back and we were like, hey, we have this incredible data set. We could tell you, Amias, let's say you're a host, we could tell you, Amias, like, hey, on your street, in your zip code, if you added a new hot tub or, you know, a pull-out sofa so you can have more people stay in your listing, you could afford, you would, you would earn let's say $50 more per night. And we could tell you that based on all the amazing data that Airbnb has because we had such great scale. 
right? So, so what we were building was we wanted to say, hey, host Amias, if you want to add a new pullout couch um, or do like a home renovation to improve your business, um, if you need capital, by the way, we have, you know, a marketplace full of, you know, we have a bunch of different options that you can look at to help finance that purchase or those, those improvements. So that, that was like, that was what we built. We built, you know, we started going down that road and built different versions of it over time. We can talk about it. But what we started to realize, like one of the really hard things actually is that a typical host on Airbnb has something like 10 reservations per year, right? So 10, they host 10 reservations per year, which basically means, you know, the average income for an Airbnb host on the platform, something like 10, this, this is all, I don't know if this is exactly right, but like directionally around $10,000 per year. So if you think about like the host as a potential borrower, we actually didn't have a ton of visibility into their overall income, right? Because most hosts, if they own a home, they're probably it's earning more than hustle. it's a side hustle. So they you know, we were only getting a narrow slice of kind of their overall income, which meant that, you know, we didn't have a huge data advantage in terms of underwriting and providing these loans. So um, it's a great question. I think embedded fintech works best when you're take lending in particular, it works best when you are lending to folks whose business is very much um, like it's primarily on the platform that, it, that, that you're running, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. When Airbnb thought about lending, for example, how much was their thinking driven by their own balance sheet versus thinking about lending or attracting lenders to the platform to lend to the small businesses who work with Airbnb? Yeah. So for us, one of the biggest challenges with the embedded finance space in particular was always the reputational and brand risk. Right. So you can imagine like a great company, a great brand like Airbnb, their core business is so strong as it is. Like if we do anything to imperil that brand, especially for what could be called like a side project or like not a core competency, um, that was never going to fly. And so we took a lot of care as we were working on this project. And one thing that I find interesting is that embedded finance, embedded fintech became very, very popular as an industry buzzword. Today, fintech companies are you know, more pressured in public markets. And so it might be that for companies like Airbnb, the pressure to be in fintech, to be in finance is lessened. Did you feel, Mike, that your projects were driven in part by the market perception of fintech being exciting to investors and the public markets? Or was it always driven by core considerations? How do we make our customer experience better? Oh, def in our case, I can definitely say it was the latter. We were, Amias, we were doing this, I should say, we were doing this starting in like 
2017, 2016, I think. So like the term embedded finance or embedded fintech like literally didn't exist. It was like doing it before it was cool. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were doing it before it was cool. It was like us Uber. It was us and Uber who were like doing this weird stuff, uh, you know, thinking about offering, you know, different financial services to our community to help them. Nobody else was doing this. I do think, though, like, you know, there's a lot of learnings from what we did. Ultimately, we had to, like, really peel back some of our fintech uh, projects and kind of roll them back, in particular, like this host lending program that I was talking about earlier. Um, You know, I, I think it could come back someday. It doesn't currently exist today because, in part, what we realized was actually we were probably, like, flipping the user problem. We were focusing on the wrong user problem. Ultimately, what we were trying to solve was um, helping our hosts deliver a higher quality experience for guests. And we were doing that through capital, but we were probably too focused on the capital part, right? Instead, we it, that that's, might be one impediment to a host providing like higher quality listing, et cetera. But like, there's a whole bunch of other pieces like guidance, like, you know, insights and data on like what improvements to make and um, the time and, you know, uh, human capital to to make it happen. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's hard for a guest to like improve their listing and capital was just one. And so ultimately what we realized, we wanted to like take a couple steps back and like focus on that core problem of like quality and how to improve it rather than focusing on the tool that we were sort of obsessed with for a while, which was like fintech and fintech um, embedded finance, if you will. And it, it raises a really interesting point about what's difficult, right? If you get the customer problem right, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll offer the right solution. So the customer problem is, how do I have make more money on Airbnb? But the constraint isn't capital, it's maybe time or, you know, uh, design choices or, or something like that. And so Absolutely. experimenting with the customer problem is really powerful. When you guys were doing this, it wasn't, it was early enough that there weren't lots of fintech infrastructure companies. As you went through the process, did you find that you as a product lead were building from scratch and putting things together or were you relying on uh, other fintech companies for identity for payment for bank connectivity for uh, various um, tooling to get access to the fintech infrastructure how much was this infrastructure versus homegrown and home built yeah it it was we definitely leaned really hard on our partners but th- that said um, I think the infrastructure has only gotten easier and easier now, you know, like Stripe and Square and all these companies now offer a lot of this infrastructure. And I think they're continue today to kind of sell like fintech as a service, if you will, or like lending as a service. So I think it's only gotten easier for a company to bring a lot of this in-house, um, probably about as much of the stack as you'd want to. But in our case, it was so nascent. We had to really rely on like a strong part. We 
we partnered with, uh, you know, a really good uh, online lender who sort of built out, I think, quite a bit of like bespoke sort of infrastructure to unlock our use case. And that that was really powerful for us to get it get it going. What were the conversations in Airbnb like about that reliance dependence um, uh, tension? Yeah, it is a tension. Absolutely. Because on one hand, like on one hand, being reliant on a fintech partner is challenging because you want to move quickly. This increases the number of parties that need to sign off, that need to build stuff, that need to do work. So so it does slow you down. But on the other hand, man, this is finance. This is like heavily regulated. And I really think that on balance, like if I were building all this stuff over again, I would lean probably heavier into partnerships, honestly, because I really think like these fintech companies that offer services and infrastructure to unlock the, you know, embedded fintech use cases, like they do this all day, every day. They know the rules and regulations around lending, around payments, whatever they're offering. And, you know, that's stuff that at Airbnb, we're not experts in, right? Like, you know, we could hire a massive team of like industry pros to do it. But especially in the beginning days when you're unlocking, you know, a minimum viable product, like just trying to see if there's like demand and any there there, man, I I think partnerships are really, really important. So Mike, um, today you're, you're out of Airbnb. And you've chosen to do something quite different, which is you've been coaching people on how to get into venture. How did you decide that that was a good activity for you? Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, I mentioned before, I, you know, I'd been working on fintech related projects at Airbnb and I've always kind of thought of myself as a finance guy. Well, before I even came to it, the reason why I came to Airbnb was actually it's a portfolio company of a firm where I used to be an investor. So I was at a fund called General Atlantic. They're, you know, a, a long-standing kind of late-stage VC growth equity style investment firm. And so for me, a little bit, it was like coming coming back home um, and kind of getting excited about helping people get into this space that Lots of people want to get into. It's quite challenging. It's not always straightforward. And so, yeah, after I left Airbnb, you know, I I looked at a a bunch of different things, but I've kind of settled into, I I started doing some coaching on the side and eventually I settled into, you know, um, doing this full time. So yeah, I help people get into um, venture jobs, growth equity jobs, and even private equity jobs. And it's not, as I said, it's not always straightforward and it, and it can be challenging. I, I do it primarily through um, a, an online course, but I also do some one-on-one coaching. And when you are talking to people, what's that first key thing that you tell your clients about breaking into venture? What's the, is there some headline that, that you always start with? Yeah. So I think it's probably a couple of things. So the first the first thing is a lot of people come to me with questions about kind of how, hey, how do I do the technical skills of venture capital or growth equity? A lot of people are really focused on the financial modeling, the case studies during their interviews. 
And, you know, some people authentically need help with that. But, you know, honestly, one of the big things that I find that candidates actually need help with is like, it really does help to be thoughtful about your candidacy and your story of like, hey, like why you, what are all of your experiences? How does it all add up to venture in the end? Like how has what you did five years ago actually been a benefit and it's an asset and it can fill a hole for the firm that you're applying for? Like I find people are really focused on these like highly technical areas, which is fine, but actually almost everyone can can do much more work on you know things like walk me through your resume why should we actually pick you like these are really competitive jobs and if you aren't really tight on those like basic fundamentals it can be really really tough to to land a job and one observation that i would have is that that element of the interview process is actually more similar to the job because ultimately in venture and investing in private markets you have to win deals by convincing founders to take your firm's money instead of someone else's money. So the story of why you is actually really close to what makes a person successful, yes. even more yes. than, well, I got the pricing just right. <laughs> I'm, I'm nodding enthusiastically because I actually, this is kind of like a weird this is kind of like a nerdy producty thing to say, you know, I was a former product manager, but like you can almost think of yourself as like a product. Hey, why should this customer buy me? <laughs> right? What is my competitive differentiation? Why should you pick me and not the, you know, the person, you know, who who you're interviewing after me? And that's the same exact exercise that, you know, I'm sure am ISU coming in and trying to win deals as an actual venture capitalist, that's how you're thinking about it too, is like, you know, how do I pitch this, this great founder to take my capital and not the next capital? What, what are the things about me as a, an investor or, you know, QED as a fund that really help us stand out? And exact, that is exactly what I find most candidates aren't thoughtful enough about. And that relates to one of the things that you're constantly posting on LinkedIn about, which is showing firms how you would do the job instead of showing them your resume. Well, one of the, I think probably my like flagship advice, if you will, to folks who want to get into this industry is don't wait for a VC. <laughs> don't wait for a VC to give you permission to start doing the job. So what does that mean? Well, it means like actually in your spare time and everyone's circumstances are different. I, I understand that. But in whatever spare time you have, be following industries, like come up with investment ideas, come up with a market thesis, send that to you know a venture capitalist rather than, hey, can I get on the phone to ask for advice or a job? Instead, send them, hey, you know, it looks like you guys might be interested in this part of fintech here's four prospects that you might be interested in. You, you know, maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. No pressure to give me any feedback, but thought you might be interested. I guarantee that that would grab your attention, Amias, much more than, you know, the hundred emails that you get uh, asking for a little bit of time and a little bit of advice. And, and much more than somebody's GPA or the particular school that they went to. 
And Mike, let's let's close with uh, Stoic philosophy. Do you have a, a favorite Stoic philosopher or, or a favorite quote that, that you like to leave people with? Oh, my gosh. I am a big fan of Marcus Aurelius. I mean, this this is like uh, this is like, you know, basic uh, Stoic philosophy. But yeah, I mean, during business school, I, I think you're referring to like during business school, I made this like little tool that would remind me of like Marcus Aurelius quotes. It's like a Chrome extension. So, uh, you know, I can't leave you with a specific quote, but what I love about it is the core philosophy is like, worry about only the things that you can control. Everything that you can't control, I find that that's like what drives me crazy is the stuff I can't control. But if you just remember like control what you can control and don't worry about the rest, it's very, very empowering. So that's that's why I'm into it. Excellent. All right. Well, Mike, that was great. Thank you for coming by the podcast. All right. Thanks a lot. This was fun. My big takeaway from Mike's experience is the value of relentless experimentation. You can see that in his own life, the side projects he's taken on, and even the decision now to become a full-time career coach but you can also see it in his reflection of the culture of Airbnb. One of his main projects there was to build a product that ultimately didn't succeed as part of Airbnb's core. But Mike's attitude wasn't one of disappointment. Instead, it was to reflect on the fact that lending, or at least the way that they approached it, wasn't ultimately the best solution to the customer problem. At the end, I put Mike on the spot with Stoic philosophy, but I've started to use the browser extension that he built, So I'll share a quote from his favorite philosopher, Marcus Aurelius. A man's true greatness lies in the consciousness of an honest purpose in life, founded on a just estimate of himself and everything else. Sounds like great advice, easy to say and impossible to follow. All you need to be great is to accurately assess yourself and everything else. Good luck out there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.